And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf, still in a post-Worldcon days, with very special guests Nina Allen and Paul K- Kincaid on a special British SF edition of the Coot Street Podcast! And we're <laughs> off once again. Um, the post, post-Worldcon haze is something which I've discovered never ends. Um <laughs> But but one of the things I guess we want to talk about, and one of the reasons that it was very nice of both Paul and Nina to join us, is that there was some discussion before, during, and after uh, Worldcon in London, or Lundcon, about the um, condition of British science fiction, which I keep hearing completely contradictory versions of. And and Nina and Paul, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, it seems to me the, the catastrophic version, the dystopian version of British science fiction, comes from... Britain more than it comes from those of us looking from the outside. Uh, probably it does because, for a start, we Brits are always pessimistic. It's part of our natural charm and you know, <laughs> view of the world. We're all doomed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> as good as that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think also we we're, we're in the middle of it and. When you're looking at, at it from outside, very often you're seeing the after effects, whereas we're seeing things in motion, as That's it were. True. And I, I think in the middle of it, it, it's less optimistic than it used to be. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's it's there's a lot of sort of changes going on. There's a lot of changes in how people are perceiving science fiction and sort of what it's actually doing and with that comes this uh, it's uncertainty and it is as paul suggests i think maybe a peculiarly british uncertainty about who we are i think also um there was the optimism of the british boom the british renaissance about you know 10 years ago and as that has faded um you know it's we're left we're left with some things good other things not quite so good uh, and yeah there's a tendency to notice how things have trailed off rather than how things have sustained let me ask how would you characterize that broom you're talking about and what has faded off to create the impression that things aren't going as well as they might be well do sometime mm. around the late 90s there was a sudden explosion in British science fiction. Um, God knows what the reasons were. There are all sorts of them. Uh, but basically, there, were, there was uh, an awful lot more writing being done in, in Britain. There was an awful lot more discussion of science fiction happening in Britain. There were new writers emerging uh, and, and making a name for themselves very quickly. Ah. The number of new writers emerging has tailed off. Some of the writers who emerged seem to have faded into the background somewhat. And the discussion uh, of, of science fiction in general, I, th- I think, has often got a little bit stale, a little tired. Okay. I think there's also there's a kind of double-edged sword going on because as um, you see more writers in the mainstream 
using science fiction in their works and feeling happy to do that and feeling that it's an acceptable literary practice. So there has been a tendency from within science fiction to fall back upon you know, more conventional genre tropes. There's a kind of gap in the middle. So you've sort of got SF proper, as it were. As Paul said, you've got fewer fewer um, charismatic new writers emerging. And you have got a kind of co-opting of science fiction ideas and innovation into the mainstream. So that has that has led to a really peculiar state of the art in SF, I think. Is there also a tendency in the UK to now undervalue the core of uh, writers who are, who are at a mature part of their careers producing major works in their 40s and 50s and beyond? You know, and I'm thinking about the Macaulays, the Baxters, the Reynolds, these kind of people who've been writing for a long time and continue to do so, you know, I mean, and continue to produce major work in amongst it all, uh, you know, Priest, the whole group. It, it, do they get discounted because we already know they exist and so it's not as exciting that they're doing what they do? I think there's definitely an element of that. It is almost taking for granted. And um, so you, you, have, you have them perceived almost as an old guard and occasionally this leads to any exciting aspects of the work being underplayed if the same work had been produced by a much younger writer it may have been perceived differently yes i think i think that's certainly true i mean take paul mccauley as an example um you know his novel last year evening's empires was one of the best things he's done it it was a wonderful novel but it got overlooked for the awards it Mm -hmm. didn't it didn't seem to attract that much attention um Mm -hmm. Maybe there is just a matter of taking people for granted. I feel like I, I, I want to share an answer that I gave to somebody uh, back at Luncon. I had breakfast with the with um, Neil Harrison, who's the reviews editor at Strange Horizons, and he sent me an essay question. He sent me, my, he asked me my opinion of the state of British science fiction, and I said I thought it was the most healthy and robust national body of science fiction in the world today, probably, and I could lay out a bunch of reasons. I could lay out the uh, successful, if occasionally struggling, I guess, major publishers you have in the country, including one of the major SF imprints in the world, Golans, the reasonably healthy and robust uh, small press publishing scene that you have with Newcon Press, PS, and others, the uh, cohort of these mature science fiction writers who have been in the field for a long time and continue to produce major, major works in their 40s, 50s, 60s, beyond, a handful, and maybe a, a smaller handful, and might have been typical in the past, of new and upcoming writers, a strong major magazine in the country, uh, Interzone, which whilst you know it may not be as groundbreaking as it was in the mid mid eighties through to early nineties, is still a, a a good science fiction magazine, and there's also a very robust criticism, uh, you know, in in the UK, whether it be sometimes very negative appearing, but also very sort of robust and analytical. And, and that combination makes the whole scene seem vibrant, exciting, and let, continuing to produce interesting and new work. I mean, what more do you want? Well, I mean, if, if, if you're looking at British science fiction as being, for example, the work of Mike Harrison or Chris Priest, 
or Paul McCauley, then it's bound to look exciting and innovative from outside because there were their writers who reached the peak of their powers fairly early and stayed there. Mm. I, one mm. of the problems is actually the ones coming through underneath. Um, they're not quite generating that level of excitement, I think. I don't know why. I don't know why it is. But, you know... It's also, it's also very, very hard for new writers because, they, I mean, here we come back to this business of the industry and the panel that I know we're, we'll discuss this more, the panel that we saw at Worldcon, um, the state of British SF. Um, but if you are a new writer coming through, there is definitely the sense that really they want your SF to fit into a certain mould. And if you're presenting anything that, well, for example, um, just to take a, an example well known to me, Chris Priest's first novel, Indoctrinaire, anybody mm -hmm. trying to get that published today as a first novel would have a list of rejections longer than their arm and I, I would lay money on that. So it, there, there is this tendency now for younger writers, newer writers of whatever age, to be forced into the middle ground. I think that is what I think that's severely damaging. I can certainly yeah, see. I, I agree. Yeah, continue. So on, I, I agree. I, I saw a number of, uh, you know, as uh, a judge for the Campbell Award, I see a huge number of books every year, and. The books I'm seeing from newer writers, from, from younger writers, tend to be following the same patterns and they tend to to be very, very familiar. It's as if they've they've been told, you know, this is what you have to do. These are the limits to, uh, to what you can do. Uh, there isn't that sense of somebody <laughs> trying anything really difficult difficult or and they different. Do, and, it, and it, it, i i can confirm this i'm in touch with you know various younger slash newer because newer is not necessarily younger writers yeah. and that you you see what happens they will show a manuscript and it's very often now with the demise of the old system where a publishing house would have readers and they you know they would they would read through and, and decide what they were going to take on. They don't have the money for that now. So the agent is now, in many cases, being co-opted into that role as well of actually seeing the manuscript that they receive from their writer, not as the manuscript, but as raw material for the manuscript that they have to kind of get into the right shape to be able to present to the editors at the publishing houses. I find this it, it's really insidious um, because they they are, in a way, they're grooming these manuscripts. They're knocking off the sharp edges. And sometimes the sharp edges are what makes an individual an exciting writer. And I think there is at least a deal of that being sacrificed at the moment. And it's a serious problem. Do you feel that's more happening in the UK or is that just a general state uh, throughout the world, which is what it seems to me, uh, where... The devolution of editing to agents and the fear over the future of the broader publishing landscape has led people, led publishers to become more conservative and to try and push that conservative on that conservatism onto writers in general. 
it probably is worldwide i just speak as a as a briton and you know mm-hmm. i know i know is the british market most of all so i'm you know probably yes it is it is probably worldwide but i i can't speak for anywhere but my own um country of experience um oh, the, the, it's the corollary of that of course is that some of the most interesting writing some of the most innovative writing is now not not being published as science fiction you know you you get people like marcel <laughs> through and uh uh nick harkaway uh david mitchell well that was a they're not, question I was they're not being published it. sorry no and, and that's that's and, and nina had mentioned that point earlier and it's uh it, it begins to sound like uh be careful of what you wish for the the argument that while we wanted science fiction to be accepted by the mainstream and when it is accepted by the mainstream it appears to be co-opted uh despite the protestations of of most of these writers i was uh, there was an interview with david mitchell in this morning chicago tribune in which uh they asked him about being a genre writer and people who don't like to read science fiction his, his response was actually a fairly intelligent one he said there are all kinds of reasons for not reading Stephen King if you don't like him, but you should not not read him because you think of him as a genre writer. And then he mentioned Le Guin and Neil Gaiman and a bunch of other people. Are people like that really co-opting the um, the market for science fiction? Is that what's causing science fiction to retreat toward the core? I don't think it's a matter of them co-opting uh, the market for science fiction. as. As Nina was saying, if the publishers are being very conservative in what they will publish under the genre label, then anything that isn't conservative has to go somewhere else. Um. Now, does that mean it's pushed not only into the mainstream, but also into the small presses? I mean, I'm thinking for the moment about the publishing career of somebody like Levi Tidhar, who's now resident in the UK Mm -hmm. and published a number of major works through small presses before finally finding a home with his own kind of work on his own ground, on his own you know, footing, with uh, a major publisher. Do you f- I mean, I'm, I'm also think- thinking about you, Nina. I mean, your first novels just come out from Newcon. You know, that must have been a decision for you based on the marketplace that you could place it somewhere like that and they'd be willing to take a chance rather than take it to a major. Is that roughly what happened? <laughs> I could I could tell you a lot of stories, but I don't um, <laughs> necessarily want to do that in public. I can mm. I can say something about La Vie. Mm. Um, if you talk to La Vie, he will still say that there are works that, you know, of his favourite works that he cannot actually publish with one of the big, you know, the mainstream publishers because... They're too, you know, he had the the um, central station stories, um, which you've probably all read <laughs> in, into Zone. He's he's put a lot of those. I think that they are some of his most beautiful and achieved works. And there are a series of linked, semi-linked stories about a a future science fictional Israel. And I I think they're spectacular. But you know, he's told me on several occasions that he can't actually, be, you know, he'd love to he'd love to publish them in the mainstream and get decently paid for them as opposed to having to <laughs> publish them in the small press and not be given a commensurate reward because what's often forgetten, forgotten is how hard it is writing as a job and how much goes into it. And the, the rewards when you publish, when you are forced to publish outside the 
um, larger publishing houses, it's a it's a it's a difficult situation for any writer. So, yeah, the small press are a really wonderful thing in in the sense of offering diversity and offering a way for more experimental works to come into print. But they are also there. It's a problem for writers because you're caught between the sort of devil and the deep blue sea. You are you are either going there's a sense that you've either got to normalize in order to be properly paid for your work or continue not to be paid for it basically i would have thought the other most more concerning almost thing than that i mean i completely respect the financial aspects of it which is significant but setting them aside for a second the other part of it is that you cannot be widely read and that means to some degree you don't get to become part of the broader conversation of the field that we all well that gary and i talk about all the time and that many of us value but unless you get Unless you're broadly broadly read, it's almost like you know you didn't happen. How many people read Martian Sands? How many read Osama before it got a broader mm. uh, edition? Uh, if Absolutely, a book, yeah. yeah. That's part. It's all part. It's all part of the same problem because because it's not just a. It's you know if you get if you get read, you get paid, and mm-hmm. if you get you know it's a circular thing. They're not too divert. They're not two different problems. They're both sides of the same problem. And it's, um, it, it, you know, I, I think it's hugely discouraging for, for new writers to be to be placed in this position in the in, um, you know, in past decades. The idea was that you a publisher would nurture a writer and, you know, create and help them help them um, further their career and their literary ambition and now you see terrible things happen where writers, new, inexperienced, often very young writers might be offered a, you know, incredible deal that you cannot turn down because it appears life changing, only to be treated as, as you know, sort of commercial um stuff that can be molded into the writer that that publishing house wants wants them to be they're going to write this kind of novel they're going to do another three book series and uh, you know it's it's that is stagnatory it's 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 the um, uh, just speaking from uh, point point of view of the united states since we're always obsessed with ourselves here uh i wonder to what extent the quirkiness of getting into the American market affects uh, younger writers. I mean, we've mentioned a couple of uh, important works, and one is, one certainly was uh, Paul McCauley's Evening's Empire, uh, which, as far as I know, still isn't coming out in the United States. I did talk to Lavi about his new novel, A Man Lies Dreaming, which is a risk-taking novel, which, as far as I know, is not coming out in the States. Is, uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, Peter Hamilton and Joe Abercrombie and Stephen Baxter do perfectly well here. Is there some concern that a career has to be built with a readership that goes beyond the UK? I, I would think a, a career has to be. I don't think there's uh, enough of a market in the UK to, to support an, a career entirely. And, um, you know, even, even really good writers, I don't know, is... Uh, Wolves by Simon Ings coming out in America? I don't think I don't so, believe. no. No, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that was one of the best books that's come out in Britain this year. But, you know, 
whether it's coming fact, out it's a from in, yeah, <laughs> whether coming out in Britain is going to actually uh, you know make it worthwhile spending the time writing the book. Yeah. And it, it hasn't is, been very it hasn't been very well publicized either. It's you know we all know it because we we take a, an interest in the, you know the state of science fiction as it were and yeah. avidly look for books exactly like it and re, you know read it I'm sure you did as well Paul read it as an ARC. I did mm. and you know yes. we've been sort of talking about it for months. But I don't know if any has anyone in the states heard of wolves? Um <laughs> Well, I reviewed apart, the English version. Yeah, apart of it, from Gary. Not, yeah. <laughs> I think it's been I mean, touched on lightly, but only lightly. I don't know that Simon made as much of a name in the US before Wolves came out. I don't think the earlier books made as much an impact. Mm. And so, you know, that imp- that would then fl- flow onto the chances of people having heard of or looking for it. So probably yeah. that small group of people who are actively looking for exciting new science fiction novels would be look- would be aware of it. And just by parentheses, I mean, coming from the yeah. States does not necessarily mean coming out from a major publisher in the States. When M. John Harrison's A Course of the Heart appeared, it was from Nightshade Books. Uh, in other words, frequently there may be an American edition, again picked up by a small independent publisher rather than a big house. Hmm. A small independent publisher in America is much bigger than a small independent publisher in the UK, of course. Well, uh, and yeah. Simon Simon has the advantage in the UK. I mean, he he came out from Golang. So I, yeah. I, if it yeah. if it comes out from a, a small press, I I think, for example, of uh, Europe in Autumn by David Hutchinson, which I think was a tremendous novel, really great, readable, exciting book. Uh, but it came out from Solaris. Um, mm-hmm. It's a decent publisher. It's a good edition. But among other things, as as I understand it, Solaris don't even submit any of their books to juried awards. That's I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think know. you know if it, if it, you know it it would have a decent chance of getting onto a shortlist for something like the the Clark Award, if it was submitted. I if assumed it, if it's not submitted. Yeah. Were you gonna say something, Nina? Yeah. I was just going to say I assumed it would automatic. I've heard I haven't read um, European Autumn yet, but I've heard such brilliant things about it. And Dave is a really good writer. I assumed that that would be almost an automatic contender for next year's Clark Award. And the idea that it ha- wouldn't won't even be submitted is that's terrible. It's really sad. Well, all I can I say, I, 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 I can't remember seeing any Solaris book submitted for any of the awards juries I, I've been on so you know it mm. it may actually be a general thing they just don't submit them I should I guess I could say partly in defense of Solaris who I work with that whenever I've asked them to submit something to a juried award they do whether they That's do it automatically or not but certainly when I've prompted them they have so um, let's prompt them for this <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, we've walked down a particular path with this conversation from the initial premise, and there's something that flows from it that I want to touch on before I try and move maybe back in a more slightly optimistic direction, and that is, prior to this this discussion, I was chatting with Gary, and I asked him this question. In the mid-1980s, Ace Books published the new Ace Science Fiction specials that were edited by um, Terry Carr, one of the great editors of of our field, and featured a batch of really quite amazing books, first novels by Gibson, Swanwick, uh, Waldrop, uh, Shepherd, Shepherd, and others. Yeah. I asked Gary, and I'm curious what your answers, you know, Nina and Paul, would be. Do you think anybody anywhere in the UK or otherwise could attempt to do that today? 
you know, I wish they would, but I don't think they will. Um, I, I, th I think what Terry Carr did was partly building on a huge reputation he already had, mm. so people trusted him. Uh, as with uh, Fred Pohl before him, you know, publishing mm. things like Dahlgren. Um, I don't think if he hadn't got the reputation as, as an editor that he would have been able to do that. But I don't think anybody would have supported it. And I'm, I'm looking around today to see editors who, who have that sort of reputation. I'm struggling. There's a handful I think I could name for you. But whether a publishing house would be willing to get behind a line of half a dozen or more, mm. I think it was half a dozen the first batch, and there's a couple yeah. of waves of them, uh, half a dozen uh, first novels by not terribly well-known writers for the most part. I mean, Waldrop was virtually unknown. Even Gibson wasn't particularly well-known. He'd been in Omni, but it wasn't hugely well-known. Yeah. Um, give them a mass-market paperback release in handsome editions and get them into every bookstore, well, in this case, in North America. I mean, that was very unusual even then and now seems inconceivable. And I, I can imagine the writers who could feature in an equivalent program but I, I struggle to see whether they're going to necessarily get that chance, not because the publishers and the editors at the publishing houses wouldn't want to, but because I think they lack faith in the market. Yes. I think, I think also, yeah. in fairness to, to history, that uh, Terry Carr did have a reputation, but Ace had a, had a built-in readership. Um, and actually putting the Ace specials out in an environment in which Ace had more than any other publisher in the United States other than Valentine, uh, had a built-in readership. These books were also published in a much narrower field of new science fiction novels than we have today. Uh, so Maybe, but that, that's suggesting that Malcolm Edwards couldn't edit the new Golan's SF specials, or uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden couldn't edit the new Tor science fiction specials. You know, I think that the mechanisms for it are there, but I'm not sure the courage and the will is there. And that is, is perhaps very much what you're talking about, you know, Nina and Paul, about this challenge that new writers face to make a real impression by creating idiosyncratic and interesting and challenging work that can get out to the, the, you know, the you know, readership at large rather than to a small focused readership and not really make the kind of impact it might. I think uh, people I, I, are... Sorry, you go, Nina. You no, go I was going to agree with Jonathan. They, they, um, I think people are actually scared. Um, I don't think it's that is anything particularly new. You can sort of look back and, the, you know, same conversations sort of happening 10, 20 years ago, sort of, oh, you know, we can't publish this because the readership won't go for it. I, 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 I think it's actually the opposite. I think the readership have far less problem with innovation and difference and diversity, both in terms of form, content, style. They don't have a problem with it. People are excited by it. They just don't know how to find it. They don't know it's out there. They don't, you know, if things are coming out in, in um, you know, editions of 200 copies from a small press, they can't, They, you know, they're not... They're not all as obsessed as we are sort of looking, you know, constantly looking down new publications lists and seeing what's coming out and following the field. They want to, They need to be actually have these books highlighted. And that is that is, you know, that should be that should be the role of the publishing industry somewhat, at least. Is there also. Yeah, I, sorry, continue, it, it's, it's like, you know, you, you 
you need to have a guaranteed return from the book before you publish it today. You mm-hmm. can't take the risk of publishing something and hope it will find its market. That market has got to be specified right from the word go. Is there also an element that there are, that we're relying on too few publishers? I mean, having spent time with the likes of Simon Spanton and Julian Redfern uh, at, at Golan's, I don't believe that they're at all averse to publishing interesting or challenging work. And they did publish Wolves, and they do publish Chris, and they do publish Mike Harrison. Hmm. So, yes, but they're all known. But, they are well, all that's to true. an extent. Yeah, they're all to an extent guaranteed. And a couple of, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to make any of this about my own personal experience. But just as an example, a couple of conversations I had with various people in the industry basically involved the words, "I really like this, but I don't have a prayer of getting it past acquisitions." So. You know, this is what I mean. Had it be had had, you know, had it been a writer with a thirty-year track record, they may have been able to get it past acquisitions. And this is what I'm talking about about it being specifically very difficult for new writers sure. to to actually to to bring their work into the marketplace if it is anything other than core conventional genre. To, to go on from there. This week saw the publication of a new novel from one of the great British science fiction writers, Gwyneth Jones, mm-hmm. a, new, a new young adult uh, Boulder's love novel. And it was self-published to very little fanfare, really, in the world. Um, and I'm curious... I think most of us only heard of it because you mentioned it. Well, and mm-hmm. I, I'd only happened to see a, a passing reference to it on her blog, and then suddenly it had come out four days ago. Hmm. And I ran off and bought it because she was selling it for some ridiculous price. And I will put a link in the show notes to this particular episode to that. So if anyone's interested in reading it, it is a standalone prequel to an existing series. And she is a, a remarkable writer. And the whole Boulder's Love sequence, given the past week or so, you know, the, the, you know, the past while's events in the United Kingdom must look extraordinarily prescient at times. But I want to ask you particularly, Nina, do you think it's still harder to be a woman in British science fiction than a man? It's, it, this is a really vexed question. All I can do really without getting into the whole thing so it dominates the whole rest of the podcast is say that isn't it shameful that Gwyneth has had to publish, self-publish, you know, a writer of that stature, ability, innovation, um, I'll talk about Trisha Sullivan, mm-hmm. uh, who mm. currently doesn't even have an agent in this country. And I have read the first draft of her new adult novel that she will be hopefully having sent out over the next weeks and months. I think it, it's it's a fantastic book. Let me say that's one one thing I can say on this podcast that, you know, people won't have had access to this information yet. It's amazing. It's real science fiction. It's real poetry. It's real language. It's real innovation in form. It's so wonderful. But uh, I think it's appalling that she doesn't already have, you know, a, a, pub, a contract, a deal, a standing contract with a UK SF publisher. Would that be true if she were a man? It's it's one of those arguments that we can't win because we can't prove it. 
but yeah, sure. I yeah. I feel that I feel that mm, maybe this isn't the right place to go into it. But yeah, I'm angry. Yes. My 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 feeling is I Gwyneth is of the stature of Chris Priest and Mike Harrison and should be being published and recognised in the same way. Trisha is of the same status as say the next Justina Robson generation. or someone like that. Yeah, mm. uh, and and again she should be being published regularly. There should be no question about that because there's an audience there. There are people who are eager to read what she writes. Somebody she's an, she's a unique is, writer. She's amazing. She is, and I mean, Mary, Mary Gentle, she's a Galanx writer, but she had a new book out last year. Barely, did she? I missed that completely. Yes, yeah, she did. Barely reviewed, barely seen. This is wrong. You know, yeah. this is something deeply rotten in the state of Denmark, as it were. I, I know you said you don't want to go down this, and I'm not going to sort of push us down it too far, but that seems to say to me that if I'm, and this is no fault of these gentlemen in question, but if I'm Steve Baxter, if I'm Paul McCauley, if I'm Al Reynolds, if I'm Chris Priest or Mike Harrison, if I'm Simon Ings, I've got a certain chance of getting my new novel published, but if I'm Justina Robson, if I'm Trisha Sullivan, if I'm Gwyneth Jones, if I'm Nina Allen, if I'm any one of a number of other people, I'm going to struggle much more. I think yeah. so. I mean, if you take if you take um, Simon Ings as an example, and I I adore Simon and his works, and he's you know deserves all the publicity that he can get. He's a fantastic writer, and he is too little talked about, in fact. But had he taken the, um, you know his 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 sort of bulk of his SF works outwardly at, published as SF works were published through the the, the 90s were they and um, then he was sort of right he wrote a couple of novels extremely good books but published by a mainstream publisher with the usual sort of aggressive oh we don't want this touched with the genre mm -hmm. plague um, so he that is why he kind of disappeared from view in the in the genre field because people didn't know that, that people didn't know those books existed now if Simon were a woman and he tried to get back into SF, as it were, with a new book after not having been talked about so much on the SF stage for the past decade. Would he have been able to um, immediately land a good deal with a major SF imprint? I don't have the answer to that question, but I think it's a question that really we should be asking, given what is happening to other women of a similar status to Simon Ings. Well, another example yeah. that comes to mind, uh, a couple of years ago, somebody knowledgeable in England told me that at that point, no woman British SF novelist had a contract with any publisher, uh, or, or at least for, 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 for new work. And there are also writers who I certainly regarded as very promising writers who have, uh, Karen Travis comes to mind, uh, who found, found a way of making a living writing, I guess, Star Wars and Halo novels. Uh, and I don't know if there's been a new actual Karen Travis novel uh, in, in several years, but that's almost almost being pushed, getting pushed away from your own work into something that enables you to survive. The other area yeah. is, is young adult. Uh, an awful lot of women 
writers mm-hmm. seem to end up writing young adult novels. Whether that is what they want to write or not, I don't know, but it seems to be where they can sell. Yeah. And obviously the same, the similar sort of thing has happened with Liz Williams, you know, who was writing some uh-huh. very interesting stuff early in her career, ended up writing some quite commercial uh, detective fantasy novels for Nightshade Books and then has ended up being self-published, I think, since then, at least at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And it does seem to be a very difficult situation. Let me ask, again, sort of bouncing around a little bit, is it a matter of, I mean, there's obviously a matter of gender, and I suspect there's other issues at play, and I think it's interesting that occasionally some women from outside the UK seem to have had more tr- success getting pu- uh, published in the UK. I'm thinking of, say, Aliette de Bodard, who's had a number of novels published in the UK, mm-hmm. um, or even Karen Warren, who's published in the UK th- through Angry Robot, and yet this other body of women in the United States and the U- UK have struggled more, particularly challenging work. Um, but do you think there's a, a timing factor? I mean, you were saying, Nina, that, uh, I think it was, that um, if you have an established career, you can now write your experimental books, but you're not going to get the chance to establish your career to be able to do that now, whether you're male or female? I think it, yeah, I I think it's, um, it is true um, for new writers, whether they are male or female, that there is a much greater difficulty in getting work taken up by major publishing houses if if it is challenging genre fiction um and it's you, you know I, I i don't think i don't think it's getting any easier and the you you see a lot of talk by the publishing houses of all we're looking for something really different we're looking for you know something that's going to go completely beyond the bounds of genre and what it's done so far but actually no they're just publishing another three book series um that isn't very different from what came out mm. the year before. It's um, I I I think it is difficult for men and women at that entry level. I mean, if I I'm thinking back to uh, I think it was last year or over year before when we had uh, Sam Thompson's Communion Town, uh, Keith Ridgeway's, uh, but neither of those books I think would have been published as straight genre novels. Uh, by a, a straight genre, genre publisher they wouldn't have even looked at them they would no. have lo- they would not have mm-hmm. looked at them it's it this is this is what this is the whole thing about the our who people who could be our i use that term you know denoting science fiction fantasy our best writers would they wouldn't look have looked at communion town uh, they would have said, oh, you know, this is a series of short stories. It doesn't really have a plot. Oh, can't you have a proper villain? This flaneur character, can't we make it a book about a serial killer instead? That's what would have happened. I, I absolutely guarantee it. And similarly with Keith Ridgway's wonderful, but I mean, the, as you say, Paul, they were two of the most extraordinary novels yeah. published since 2013, 2012. Um, I can't remember. I think, it, I think it was the year before books. last. Yeah, yeah, Hawthorne they, and, and they Child. Do. Hawthorne and Child is a is a masterpiece, and the mm. the writing is it's just immaculate. And the central segment, what I call the sort of alternate London segment, is just it's pure slipstream of the highest quality I have mm. read in years. And that that book was very very lucky because it was published 
it was published by Granter, but sort of not a lot of people knew about it. And then various people online, um, John Self of John Self's Asylum, which is a really well thought of um, book blog, he took up its cause. And so sort of gradually that spiraled outwards and more mm -hmm. of us read it and got more genre readers reading it. And it's sort of like it, it did a lot well. It went, it, it went into quite a few reprints, I think, after that. But it, it wouldn't have... It wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for that word of mouth thing, because no. in a sense it was being kept from its. This is this is um, I feel this strongly about um, James Smythe's The Machine, that it was kept from its rightful audience initially. It was published determinedly as mainstream. We don't want to use the word science fiction on the book jacket. We don't want to actually you know, be get, you know, getting down and dirty with that. So the people that did subsequently turn out to adore the book and it ended up shortlisted on two major genre short, award shortlists, they, it didn't really gain any traction for the better part of a year because it was being, you know, it was being held back from its rightful audience. So we are, this is coming right back to what we were saying at the beginning of this conversation. This is part of why, um, the British SF scene feels so confused, diluted, aimless in in some quarters because there's no guts in the genre world, and the mainstream world is pulling off all our best writers. <laughs> well, is that is that <laughs> it's is that producing the most innovative work? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was just I was just saying it is it is producing the most innovative work. I mean, if you if you want to do something that. Uh, that pushes at boundaries or, or that, that plays with with uh, ideas of narrative or character or whatever, you don't publish it as a science fiction novel these days. You publish it as mainstream. That's the only way you're going to get into print. Well, if you can do that, I mean, I, I always wonder if David Mitchell would have had any success at all had he come from the ranks of science fiction writers with exactly the same work that he's been producing. Uh, or, I mean, he, he, I mean, you know, I, I, I knew David slightly when he was at uh, at, at Canterbury, and uh, you know, that was what ten, fifteen years before he started publishing, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, he was a member of a brief BSFA, and uh, you know, he he was very into science fiction. It's it was no surprise reading his books to see what he was doing with them, but he wouldn't have published mm -hmm. them as science fiction, I don't think. No, because they were too. <laughs> no, carry on. But Nina, you implied almost as though publishers feel a need to insulate these from a science fiction readership in order to protect their pedigree. And to some extent, I think that Jonathan and I could probably verify that Locus frequently does not get review copies of books like Richard Powers' novels or Margaret Atwood books simply because uh, either they don't care or they don't want them reviewed in genre venues yeah isn't isn't there a case um i think it was liz jensen's most recent novel um the uninvited i think it was that was deliberately not submit they wouldn't submit it for the clerk i i forgive me mm. if i'm wrong with that but i'm mm. sure i heard that and, yeah and, um, and the same with the same with the road uh that you know the publishers refused to submit that for the clerk award 
even when it's called in you know they even when you know yes. there's a call yeah. they will not they will not actually yeah. submit you know that is that's downright weird can I, also, can, I also, can I also say though i mean what that pushes me up against though is without arguing with how people choose to run their awards that maybe there are times when the awards need to be more flexible as well and ignore what publishers want well, no, the clerk is very flexible and it will call. I mean, I've already sort of made a mental note that if, um, you know, that we must apprise Tom Hunter about um, Dave Hutchinson's book and make sure it is called in. If it's not going to be submitted, mm. it must be called in. And Tom always puts out calls, you know, at the beginning yeah. and sort of a beginning of um, Clark Award submission season, you know, any books anyone thinks should be submitted please let him know because they'll do a call in they will do that they actively yeah. mm-hmm. um, especially in more especially in more recent years they've been really proactive in calling in books from mm. other imprints not necessarily genre imprints so it's not well, the I, remember, I remember years ago uh, having to call in amitav ghosh uh, calcutta chromosome because um, that wasn't automatically submitted mm-hmm. and it took a lot of persuading to get the publisher to send it in and when it was shortlisted and uh, we invited the publishers to the award ceremony because it had won but they, we mm. had to tell them beforehand that it would won that it had won because otherwise they wouldn't have thought it was worth their while turning up they they said we're not coming unless you tell us it's won <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's it's unbelievable look at what happened to um jane rogers who won the Clark, was it in mm. 2011? Um, yeah. She is a, again, there, you know, here we have another woman writer with a 30-year career, a very, very fine stylist, um, great, good writer. Um, she wrote an SF novel, um, The Testament of Jesse Lamb. It's clearly, you know, it's a dystopia. There's no getting around it. She submitted it to her former publisher, Faber, who wouldn't take it because oh sf so she published it via sandstone a small scottish independent it won the clark and then hey presto who does the new edition faber so they sort of they weren't courageous enough to take that book for what it was for it's the same book so that there's a lot of you know really sort of cowardice around SF still, I think. In, in, an, odd way, I find, in an odd way, um, Nina, I find that encouraging. The idea that uh, that the small community of people who give out awards, judge awards, nominate things for awards, can actually bring attention to a, to a small press book. I mean, I, I, I'm sure some of the award attention to Lavi's Osama had something to do with that book's later success. I've always wondered if awards have any really salutary effect on on um, the commercial lives of books or authors at all and this suggests to me that maybe they do yeah i, I mean think that, that surely that's the purpose of awards isn't it you know that that's what awards should be about it, you know awards aren't there for their own good they're to draw attention to to yeah. the books that yeah. are out there which that's they do they they, right? yeah <laughs> they they do but it's the sort of the <laughs> the double standards here by the you know by the publishing the original publisher sort of saying oh no we're not going to take this it's Mm -hmm. sf but then oh no it's won an award now we'll snap that up thank you very much and um yeah i think the same 
the same thing happened with um, Osama. I think you're right that once it won the, I think it was the World Fantasy Award, it yeah, then got, yeah. got taken on. It got taken on by a larger imprint. But if you talk to um, Lavie about the problems he had um, with people even reading it with that title more than one, I mean, sort of, I, I lose track of the number of times he was told, or oh, you know, we cannot, we can't publish it with that title. They were sort of running scared of the title Osama. Oh. They weren't going to publish it because it's it's um there's very uh, there's a lot of um, double standards and sort of fear. Um, that sort of lack of, I think I said earlier, lack of guts sure. to actually go out yeah. on, a, on a on a limb for anything. For all that some things are are challenging, in amongst this conversation, there's actually a lot of optimistic things being said. It may be strange to say, and what I think is optimistic is I hear us again and again talking about particular works, particular writers who have high quality science fiction to get published. The work exists. It's not that writers are failing to create the work. It's not that writers are not engaging. It's not that writers are not interested. There may be a breakdown in the delivery mechanism, but the actual creation exists and is there to be applauded. I'm curious what you think. I mean, my impression out, sitting outside, from outside the UK is that on a critical promotional level, there is more grey skies talked about than blue skies celebrated. And I wonder if you feel the critical community does enough to laud the exciting work that exists when it, you know, rather than spending time talking about all that's wrong with the world. I think I think we are only too happy to um, pick up and champion a book that hasn't received the attention that it deserves. I, I like um, I do some reviews for Strange Horizons and I particularly like to bring works there from non-genre imprints that the science fiction and fantasy readership may not perhaps have come across in the ordinary course of events. I reviewed a book recently called The Way In by Will Wiles, who's a new-ish British writer. He, the, the Way In was his second novel. Um, his first novel was very well received in, in sort of quite a small way. But, you know, generated quite a lot of excitement. It was a completely mainstream novel. His second novel, The Way In, is something rather different. It's got very, very strong, exciting genre elements. And it's sort of a, a, a sort of a dystopia of now, if you like. And I read this. I thought it was wonderful. I very much wanted to bring this to the attention of other genre readers who I feel certain, you know, anyone with an interest in contemporary British speculative fiction would love this book. So I think, that, and, and Paul, Paul does this all the time. I'm constantly getting book tips from Paul. <laughs> it's, it's true. Is there a platform, and obviously Strange Horizons may be one, that allows critics and commentators to shout to the world? Because obviously the challenge here is to take a lot of the people that we've talked about tonight and shout at the, lar lar you know, the, the world at large about them so that there's a chance that their work might be picked up by you know, larger imprints overseas and build their commercial reputation as well as their critical ones. Do you think those avenues exist enough? 
I think the avenues I, that exist do make a difference, yeah. I, I think the, the point is not to have one or two big avenues, but to have lots and lots and lots of them. You know, there are all sorts of places uh, where, I mean, there are podcasts like this. There are the reviews that we write for Strange Horizons or Vector or the academic journals or Interzone. Uh, there, there are, uh, there's Locus and there's the uh, recommendation for Locus that is done at the end of it each year. There are the, the awards. There are all sorts of avenues that we can bring people's attention to the books that excite us and you know that's our job basically the question is how much of the audience do we read are we simply preaching to the converted so to speak i'm <clears throat> i mean i'm often aware of the fact that locus can bring books to the attention of locus readers um and occasional locus readers possibly as well but uh to bring a book such as The Way In, which, by the way, Chris was talking to me about with great enthusiasm at Longcon, and I do want to read that. Uh, reaching beyond that audience is, is difficult for us because we're still a fairly insulated community. It's one that's of the why I think. Sorry. <laughs> I, that's why I think we need to have lots and lots of different avenues to, to reach people. Um, you know, because... Locusts will reach a lot of people, but they're, they're standard locust readers. Folk, mm -hmm. uh, Strange Horizons will reach um, a, a lot of people, but they're standard Strange Horizons re readers. Uh -huh. What you've got to do is to get everyone, both the locust reader and the Strange Horizon reader, to be aware of the book. So, we, you know, we, we've got to fire off in every direction at once. And it, it is one of the one of the massive strengths of the genre community that there is this online critical community and that the these reviews are being published and are circulated in a multitude a growing multitude of venues and this mm. do, this really doesn't exist in the same way in the mainstream it's an absolutely you know it's unique to science fiction people retain their passion for books and for science fiction throughout the whole of their lives and continue to talk about it argue about it discuss it i think this is you know so important and going and, back to and one of the key Jonathan's points is that it is a discussion it's not just one person spouting but other people chime into the conversation and argue with them and raise other points or suggest other things um you know when strange horizons stopped uh, comments on the uh, on the reviews recently because of uh, too much spam coming through it it was, it was actually a major loss because an awful yes. lot of conversation goes on there. Yeah, it's a shame. They are going to get that sorted, though. I believe yeah. they, they're working on that. It, it is a shame. Mm. But going going back to something Jonathan said earlier about um, although there may be some kind of blockage in the delivery system about the passion for creation and ha whether or not innovative new SF is still being created in this country and whether you know writers still have the guts and the zeal for it i would answer absolutely and that you know that again is a is a is a key strength there are there are writers writing there are writers still wanting to enter our genre in spite of all the difficulties and to do interesting things i'd sort of mentioned two 
young writers in particular. One of them is Emma Swift, E.J. Swift, who's currently mm. working on the third novel in her Osiris trilogy. Mm-hmm. There's every sign that she is building to be quite a, a special writer, sort of beginning um, beginning in sort of a fairly conventional dystopian setup. She's Her books are actually progressing as they come out into, you know, she's really doing things with SF in a a very beautiful way. The other writer I'd mention um, is um, a Mancunian, uh, Matt Hill. Some of us may have read his first one. It was called The Folded Man, set in a dystopian future, Manchester. Again, this was published by Sandstone Press, who published the Jane Smiley. Mm -hmm. And he's currently, he's just finishing a new um, book again set in a future manchester but it's a it's a big i've read the first draft of this and it's a big step up it's a and it's real sf it's courageous it's original he wants to enter the genre sort of like you think <laughs> poor fool but he's so passionate about science fictional ideas and about science fiction as the form of literature that best um enables innovation expression and sort of daring new ways to talk about current and future issues and the you know people are coming sam thompson again he's his new his next novel i don't know when that will be forthcoming but he wants to stay in speculative fiction we're we're (coughs) you know we, we are lucky we're we're you know people are writing and you know, it's great to talk about them and get people looking out for their books because this is, you know, this is what we want, readers to discover these amazing writers. And the other thing that goes with that is there's the readership for it. There, are, There is a hunger for these interesting, challenging, different, innovative books. You know, the, people want to read these books. So, you know... If, 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 if we can encourage more writers to produce them, if we can encourage people to produce those books, the readership is there waiting for it. I, I certainly I, have a... Sorry, Nina. No, I was just going to say I completely agree. The, the, this is what I was saying earlier. It's not the readership that's the problem. The readership doesn't have the... There's so much sort of bump, I'd say, talked about how, you know, the internet generation, they're losing their attention span. Ooh, it's all got to be World of Warcraft. It's ludicrous. There's sort of like the many, many of the um, new ways of communication um, from gaming, um, box set, wonderful um, TV series where there are very, very long extended story arcs. There's sort of all the all the multimedia things that are at people's fingertips. Far from deadening the intellect they're actually really opening up opening people up to new ways of storytelling that's that's completely been my experience when readers have got hold of my fiction they they like unpicking what the publishers like to brand difficult texts they relish ambiguity and the idea that they've got to contribute something to the story themselves they readers do as paul the paul used the right word there is a hunger for it I believe there is too. I mean, I look at the way certain reason, you know, substantial or reasonably substantial you know, standalone science fiction novels have been received even over the last five to ten years. I mean, whatever you think of the final novel itself, when uh, Paolo Bacigalupi delivered The Wind-Up Girl, everyone was excited that it existed because they wanted that kind of a book. Maybe it wasn't as good a book as it could have been, but they wanted it to be. 
I think to mm. some degree you can see that, irrespective of the strengths or weaknesses of the book, you can see that in the response to Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice. You could see it in the response to Hanu Ryan first novel. You know, science fiction wants these books. Uh, writers appear to be writing them. It's getting a, the mechanism, somehow creating the confidence in publishers to take more chances with them and to do it on a, on a larger scale than 500 copies. And I'm not trying to do yeah. that. I, I'm, I'm also going to say, sir, <clears throat> the, the, um, the, the other thing, um, well, a footnote about the wind-up girl is, again, it came out from a small press in the United States when, before it got the attention. One thing, I, I, I don't know if this is true in England, I don't know who it would be, but there are sort of mainstream slash genre people that uh, I think have done a lot to promote science fiction uh, and fantasy and literary science fiction and fantasy. Uh, the Wind-Up Girl was brought to national attention really by Lev Grossman in Time magazine, more than any other source, who's also been a champion of George R. R. Martin and, of course, is a novelist himself. For years, we've had a Michael Durda writing uh, sympathetic, intelligent pieces on fantastic literature. You have... In Australia, you have James Bradley, a novelist and critic. Who is the UK equivalent of these belletristic uh, literary men, as they used to call them in the 1920s? I don't know that we have them. I, you, the closest we get is, is you know, the occasional reviews in The Guardian by uh, Mike Harrison or Ursula Le Guin. But we mm. don't have... The, the one steady place that that we don't have a Michael Durda with Michael Durda's sort of place to write, mm -hmm. where people where people will always know to find the stuff. Not, yeah, not in you Britain. get you you often get SF coverage um, in the broadsheet newspapers has been ground down to near zero. There's less and less and less of it, and sort of like it, there, and, and fewer and fewer words, and you get, you tend to get some um, science fiction roundups, which can't be anything more than 250 word plot synopses, really, which is a, a shame. But um, yes, I mean Adam Adam Roberts has um, done some really good reviews in the Guardian, um, but again, he only gets a quarter page, would you say, Paul? He doesn't get much space to expound uh -huh. it. I think I that's about standard for all of them. Mm. Just as just a, a parenthetical note, you're, I can attest to what you're saying, Nina, because Science Fiction Roundup is the title that the Chicago Tribune put on my column, which is limited to about 300 words per book. Uh, so that happened to be exactly on the mark without your possibly knowing it. We had a comment in the... We get a small number of comments about the podcast sent in every now and again. And recently, a listener made the comment that he felt that there's an undertone to it that we are having breakfast in the ruins. That's not how I feel about science fiction, but I'm curious, Nina, Paul, do you ever feel that that's where you are in British science fiction? Because I can't believe it could possibly be so. Can you just repeat that, Jonathan? Because your line broke up then. So, I couldn't sorry. Hear. Do you feel that, I mean, uh, Barry Malzberg wrote a very interesting memoir called Breakfast in the Ruins about science fiction. And someone had said that this podcast sometimes casts science fiction as though we were having breakfast in the ruins. Do you feel at all is that in the, in the case of British science fiction? Because I can't imagine it could possibly be so. 
I'm sure I'm sure we'll I'm sure we talk that way but it's it's it is a it's a it's a push pull thing because what has this podcast been doing at sort of what one minute we're talking as if you know you Paul Paul um Paul wrote his fabulous article for in the LARB about you know exhaustion in science fiction mm. um which was widely read and quoted everywhere and it's a great piece but that's sort of like you know we're all doomed the we're all doomed approach which we Britishers do seem to love but on the other hand here we are you know find having no problems whatsoever picking out handfuls of books and you know slamming them metaphorically down on the table and saying read this this is being produced this is being written here are new books that are being written that haven't even been published yet that are you know fantastic so I I think it's um it's almost it's all it's 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 almost a sort of a way of the critic to stare down the barrel of the gun but <laughs> <laughs> but we're also really good at dodging bullets so yeah <laughs> i i think there's actually two things going on here in a, in a we're almost talking about two different science fictions because we're talking about, I mean, the exciting stuff, but it is exciting stuff out there. And we're really uh, delighted to discover new writers who do things that are interesting and different. Uh, we're always looking to, uh, to to find books that challenge us, to make us, that make us think, that engage us in ways. But there's also that sort of core of, science fiction that repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself that's the stuff i was talking about when i when i talked about exhaustion uh and there's that going on and that is very unlikely to actually produce anything that does challenge or engage or make us think differently but isn't that almost a kind of elitism i mean isn't that saying that this other stuff which other people enjoy which it appears to be intellectually tired to us is should somehow shouldn't be getting the 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 readership it gets that people are no, reading I'm the not, wrong thing i'm not saying it shouldn't i'm not saying it shouldn't get the readership it gets and it's there for that readership what i'm saying is that that is being seen as what science fiction is when there's actually the science fiction that is also innovative and challenging but we we've been talking about um, and it, it's it's like you 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 say science fiction and you automatically get one of the two pictures. You don't get the fact that there's two of them. They're both there and they're both doing di- very different things. But hasn't that core always been there? I mean, is the real issue maybe that because the marketplace has become more difficult, uh, the innovative work has become more marginalised, and the clearly commercial work has maintained its market pla- market share yeah ma- that's what we were talking about earlier when when we were saying that the uh, the uh, the publishers are looking for the ready sale that the the assured market for it you know, you, well, you get possibly, that assured market if you do the same again there's possibly a, a another factor that um that people like labels people are looking for labels we we don't seem to have anything emerging with an easily, um, with easy nomenclature, we don't have something that we can call a new wave or the new space opera or cyberpunk. Although 
I did get a. Con- I was contacted by a journalist who wanted to inter- interview me about solar punk, uh, <laughs> which I think is a genre about two weeks. Uh, I thought we were going to get through this without mentioning the P word. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's it's. I think it's also it has a big. Um, change since the days of the new wave has been the kind of bleed through of the core genre imagery into mainstream media if you think about when the new wave happened there was no star wars there was no alien there was no doctor well there there was sort of doctor who but it was a real a real fringe show at the time now everyone seems to think that they know what science fiction is it is these images it is the TARDIS it is what you know so there's there is a kind of huge market around producing more of that but I still think the real science fiction literature is and remains what it always has been to an extent it's outsider literature the new the new wave were outsiders they were doing something else they were challenging an already accepted order and I think that we you know there are still writers doing that with we've been talking about them so mm. maybe in in some ways maybe not as much has changed as um as we would like to think maybe the point is that in order to find those writers we don't have to look for the label science fiction anymore we have to look elsewhere for it because that's where they're being published which of course makes it more difficult for the reader Yes. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, benefits of the rather tired kind of marketing labels, etc., is that you can at least find you know, the work and read it as though it were science fiction because you're interested. Uh, mm. But it's more difficult. Let me ask you, put it to you this way. Do you all think it would be fair to say that the art of science fiction in Britain is actually in good health, but the business of science fiction is in greater trouble? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't say that to stop the conversation, but I, I feel like it's, it's, it's worth. It's, I think what we're struggling, what, what we're working towards to get to, towards is a way of synopsizing the fact that really there is a lot to be optimistic about. We're dealing with a group of people who, as readers and engaged readers, are basically optimistic about what we're seeing. It's just as there are these barriers, and maybe what I pick up as being. A lot of negativity from some critical circles in the UK is frustration with that. I think frustration is a big part of it. Um, it may actually be also that the nature of fiction is changing, the, the, the media in which we find fiction. It's becoming more diffuse, uh, more, more disparate. Uh, so it's not always easy to find things anymore. It's not easy to find the books you are going to enjoy because they could be mixed in with an awful lot of other things or they may not eat, you know they may not bear a label as you say but that you can recognize so it's it's not so easy to keep up with the the things that excite you as a reader and we all have different things sure. that excite us is this one of the costs of the science fiction field atomizing over the last 20 years yes I think it is. Um, and I definitely think that the science fiction field is atomized. And I have to say that I think in many ways we have gained a lot from it atomizing. So I wouldn't want to characterize it as a negative thing, but everything comes with its, its, its 
wins and its its losses. And one is, I think, that it is much harder now, and this is something we'd like to see. I mean, we talk about critics getting behind books, but it is harder for everybody to read the same thing and to get behind it and become enthusiastic about it and share it on a communal cultural level. You know, if you think about science fiction novels that everybody seems to have read in the last 10 or 15 years, there's a pretty small handful of them. And, if, and it's getting smaller every year. And, oh, if, but... and if I go back you know, to when I first really encountered the science fiction field in a robust kind of way, I mean, I've been reading since, science fiction since I was seven, but I didn't really encounter the field till I was, you know, it was the mid-1980s, early, early to mid-1980s. At that point, you felt like everybody was reading the same thing. I mean, where I was, everybody read Neuromancer, everybody read Mythigo Wood, everybody read a bunch of other books. Now it's, oh, this thing you've never heard of, which was published in, you know, you know, by somebody in six copies, you know, you've got to go find it. And, I mean, I was talking about mechanisms to promote stuff to, to make things clearer for people, easier for readers. But it does seem to me that that remains the great challenge in what in, in, what in many other ways is a really healthy, vibrant scene. It's, yeah, I, also... I, I, I agree entirely. And I mean, one of the things... I think is a positive about the atomization of science fiction is I always hated the ghetto. I always hated the ghetto idea. And I like to see science fiction and the mainstream merging into each other and becoming indistinguishable. That for me, that's a good thing. Uh, but it, it just makes it very difficult for there to be focal points that people can recognize and converge around and be aware of. Were you going to say something there's a, yeah, there's a, the um, a, the the um, SF British SF symposium that we held at Strange Horizons a couple of weeks before uh, Worldcon. Martin mm. Petto wrote a very interesting essay on genre in the mainstream, um, bringing forward these ideas of what Paul has been saying about some of the more interesting uh, SF, as it were, now being found outside of. Um, SF. Uh, There could be, it could be that we are in this time of flux where it seems as though the the normal home of SF, there's there's a a sort of conservatism abroad and this sort of people are frightened, they don't know what's, you know, what to publish. And in the in the mainstream, it's, it's now seen by a whole variety of writers as not only acceptable, but exciting to bring science fictional conceits into their work so there's almost you could and i think martin argued there was a dialectic in progress here you have the you know um thesis old style sf antithesis um sf bleeding into the mainstream producing a new synthesis of um sf then reacting either for or against that Mm co-opting of sf into the mainstream and producing work to challenge that again and hopefully hopefully we'll get some interplay here and and produce some very interesting works as a result as you were talking i was trying to think of examples of that because the the other side of that question of course is as as you say paul the ghetto is is horrible but frequently Mm. reinforced from within the ghetto as well there sometimes is an attitude on the part of science fiction core readers that if a margaret atwood or a michael chabon write science fiction, it's get off my lawn, this is our territory. But Michael Chabon was the one example I can think of, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which seemed to be discussed and celebrated equally within the genre and, and outside of it. It won a nebula, as I recall, didn't it? 
Yeah. And David Mitchell, to an extent, people are mm. a lot. A lot of people within genre are discussing the bone clocks at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there are some there are some authors that seem to be allowed to write science fiction if they're commonly perceived as mainstream writers. Not not to sort of trip back over my own argument too much, but do you think also sometimes we put too much value in some of these metrics, you know, award nominations or whatever else, um, when we come to discuss science fiction, particularly science fiction in the UK. I mean, I'm thinking about the reaction to the recent Hugo Awards and that kind of thing. I mean, uh, Martin Pedro wrote, wrote another piece for um, the LA Review of Books where he talked about, you know, very pessimistically, I felt, about the, the state of the Hugo Awards and, the, and science fiction. And, and I wonder if, in conversation at least, we can overvalue those things when things are actually at a broader level much healthier than that. Um, on the Hugos in speci- specifically, uh, I think I was fully in agreement with Martin, but then I come back at that from a position of I, I felt the Hugos have been terminably and irredeemably broken for about the last twenty years, so I, I don't it doesn't surprise me. But it, it's it's it was actually sad to look at the works that got nominated. This is the first. British Worldcon that I can recall, and I think the first one I went to was 79, in, in which there was only one British writer in the fiction categories at all, and that was Charlie Stross, uh, who, you know, for all his qualities as a writer, he, he's not necessarily the best writer in Britain. He's probably not even the best writer in Scotland. So, you know, it, it, it's somewhat disappointing and dispiriting to, to see that what we produce in this country is not getting that recognition that would put it onto a Hugo list. I, I felt, and I said so on the podcast, an enormous frustration. And if I'm talking to everybody, I apologize. Um, an enormous frustration with the Hugos this year because I was hoping that the enormous British voter, you know, votership, voting audience would propel some of the major works of British science fiction onto the ballot. And there's all kinds of weirdness and jiggery-pokery going on this year anyway. But I would have thought that the kind of books that could have been eligible, Evening's Empires, the adjacent um, batch of others... Evening's Empires was uh, Strange Bodies by Marcel Theroux should have been there. But what appalled me, actually, and it it did appall me, uh, people always look at the wrong part of the, the, the Hugo voting process. They look at the final ballot... And they get grouchy, right? And they go, this, these aren't the right books. These aren't the major books, whatever. Many times they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. What got me was, though, if you look at the, the nominations, the raw nominations, you know, it didn't take a lot of nominations to get onto that best novel ballad. But you're getting, I mean, Evening's Empires failed to attract 40 nominations. Yeah. Out of thousands of people voting. How is that even possible? Is you know, I know. I that's that's and this is where I, where, I mean, this is when I I also I sort of glibly on Twitter asked the question, you know, does British SF hate itself? Doesn't British fandom love British science fiction? I think this, it it doesn't all agree on what bits of it it loves. <laughs> yeah. What's your feeling, Melina? Um, I, it's I I think I think. You know, Paul has touched on this, that the field has become so if the field has become atomized, then fandom 
to an extent has become atomized as well. So you've almost got camp followers of particular styles of SF, particular leanings of SF. So, I mean, this is both a, a good thing because, it, you know, it's showing passion and and people looking for their particular way into into SF and being hugely supportive of that. But it does it does present a, a problem for, you know, some of the books that you know, Paul was just mentioning there that should have made the Hugo ballot in an ideal world. You know, it's sort of getting them noticed. And the, the ones the one positive thing that you could say about this year's Hugos is sort of among not it, with regard to the fiction categories uh, among not very much that you could say positive that if you look at the breakdown of nominations, if what you know, if the, the sort of very um, obvious and open gaming of the Hugos that took place hadn't taken place, um, the shortlist would have looked a lot more interesting. So people who were, as I, I would I'd say, participating honestly in the nominations process were showing some passion for some very good books. It is out there still. It's just very, very unfortunate what happened this year. We, we need One to wrap things- up, but just to summarize for what, but I, I guess I guess there is something broken about any award when you come away from it celebrating the fact that you avoided a catastrophic embarrassment. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the one of the things I felt about the the Hugo's this year is if you look at the long list of nominations, and you compare that list to the short list for the Nebula Awards, for the Clark oh. Award, for the BSFA Award, for the Campbell Memorial Award, uh, for the lo- top locust list. There's very little crossover. Mm. It's it's like mm. nobody agrees on what are the best books anymore. I, Ancillary Justice is the only book that ev- that appeared everywhere. Mm-hmm. Since we should wind up, because we normally run for an hour, but I wanted to let us run a little bit longer, because I think there's a lot to say about this and still a lot more to say. I want to throw yeah. out a completely unfair question to both Nina and Paul before we wind up, Gary. And that is... Could you name for our listeners two books, two, two British science fiction books of 2014 that they should go out and pick up and read? I'm thinking because you know, when a book comes out and is new, that's the time to support it and give it a chance to flourish. So you know, is there anything in particular that you think is excellent and outstanding that you, know, you think people should seek out, Nina? I, I, oh, there's, there's so many. Um, as... Paul, I think Paul mentioned Marcel through Strange Bodies. That's a really interesting book. Um, Emma, E.J. Swift's Cataviero is a beautiful, haunting book. And as I said before, a considerable step up from her debut. And as one wild card I'd just like to put out there, yeah. go out and try Howard Jacobson's J. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and Paul? Uh, well, I've mentioned already uh, Wolves, Simon Ings, uh, Europe in Autumn by Dave Hutchinson, uh, also Tiger Man, Nick Harkaway, and I haven't read it yet, but everything I've heard about it suggests uh, Bet by Adam Roberts. Definitely books that need to be examined. Excellent. Well, Gary, I think you'd enjoy you'd join me in thanking Nina and, and Paul for joining us. It's been a really interesting I- conversation. We'll have to go on for another hour. And I, I hope we get to sort of revisit it in some different way in the future. 
Sure. So, so thank you very much, Paul. Okay, thank and you. Thank you very much, Nino. I, we look forward to talking to you both again. Thanks so much. Good. And I'd just like to say to everybody out there that at the moment, Paul has a new book of reviews and criticism out there, Call and Response, from Back on Books. And Nina's first novel, The Race, is out from Newcon Publications. I picked my copy up at the Worldcon, and I would encourage everybody else out there to go and jump online or do whatever you need to do to, to pick one up. And Gary, next week we shall return again, be and we shall continue back. our chat here at breakfast time in the ruins. Okay. Okay. Until now, <laughs> as always, we remain the Cood Street Podcast.